All right. Well, I have the pleasure of calling up Hans. He's going to lead us in uh, the word this morning. So everybody give him a round of applause. It's, uh, it's pretty awesome. Uh, Hans, Nicole, and their kids have been a part of Megan and I's connect group for the last little while. And then uh, recently, they just moved up to Parksville, where they lead a connect group. And so, again, it's just, it's just cool to see how God is moving, how God's brought this family in. And now uh, we have an opportunity just to hear what God has laid upon his heart. So I'm just going to pray, and then I'm going to hand it over to Hans. Father, we just thank you for this man. Thank you for uh, just the preparation and the planning. But Lord, uh, we just pray your Holy Spirit would speak through uh, the planning, the preparation. And if there's other things, God, I just pray that you would just speak to him. Father, just pray that we would have open ears to hear what your word is saying in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Thanks, Nate. Well, it's fantastic to have the opportunity this morning to be here. Uh, As Nate said, uh, Nicole and I and our two kids, uh, we lead a connect group in Parksville. And we have a ton of fun up in Parksville. So if you're looking for a connect group, come to Parksville. Um, so like Nate said, uh, Oceanside is our home. We've been here for a while. Uh, we really enjoy being at Oceanside. Um, my wife is a vice principal at Wellington Secondary. Um, yeah. Ooh. Um, I run a small consulting business as well as I'm finishing my last semester of my Masters of Divinity. Uh, we're also a hockey family. My boy is a goaltender for rep hockey in Parksville. So we are crazy busy. Um, in fact, as I sat down to uh, work on this, uh, this preach, I thought, man, how busy are we? So I had to write it down because I couldn't believe it. So in the last two weeks, um, I've been out of town. I was up in Prince Rupert for work, four hours up the Douglas Channel on a little ferry. And it took me 13 and a half hours to get home. Um, we've been to... Ten hockey games, ranging from Victoria to Port Alberni, uh, a bunch of practices in between. Uh, this weekend is my son's home tournament in Parksville, so I've been living at the hockey rink. Uh, so it's really nice to be in a warm building for a change this weekend. Uh, in fact, um, someone asked, where's my wife and kids? Well, they're in Parksville at a hockey game this morning. <laughs> but uh, it's great to be here, and I'm just amazed at how quickly Sunday has come. But now we're here, and... Um, it is fantastic. So we're working on a series about the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. Uh, one of the great things about asking or being asked to do a series preach is that you get a great variety in who's speaking and their delivery and what God is speaking through uh, several different people. One of the other interesting facts about preaching a series is that Mark sends us an outline, so we know who's preaching on what day, we know what their topic is, and we know what their reference is, but we know nothing about the content of their sermon. So like everybody else, we come on Sunday eagerly anticipating what's going to be preached. So last Sunday I came, I'm like, this is great, Katie's preaching about the 12 spies, this is going to be awesome. She's talking about shifting perspective and building faith. It was really good. I was taking notes on my phone, I'm like, yeah, this is great. And about halfway through, I thought, hang on, that's my point. (laughs) Oh, no. And about five minutes later, I thought, oh, there's point three of my sermon. (laughs) But I was like, oh, this is really good. Keep going, keep going. And so as I left, um, 
I was meditating on it a bit and I was praying. I'm like, okay, got it. You just gave me all of this word to preach and Katie just knocked it out of the ballpark. How am I going to follow that up? It's going to be like I'm just regurgitating like I cheated off her notes or something. <laughs> but as I was praying, God said, you know what? Don't worry about it. Go with the word that I've given you. Um, it's the word that you have. It came out this morning in our prayer time um, through Nathan's word on wonder and uh, through some of the other prayers. And it just reinforced that at times God is a God of repetition. When he has something that he wants to say, he wants it repeated time and time again. And so as we head into this, uh, this preach, it's also about perspectives. So um, there'll be a little bit of repetition, but I think it's a good repetition. And so uh, we launched today going back into the book of Exodus. Uh, we'll get that first slide up. And one of, the, um, one of the great parts about Exodus is the significance of the actual Exodus itself. So uh, Baker's Encyclopedia of the Bible uses this definition, that the Exodus was one of the most significant events in the history of the Hebrews. It was a unique demonstration of God's power on behalf of his people who were working under conditions of forced labor for the Egyptians. So, so dramatic was the circumstances in which the Exodus occurred that they were mentioned frequently throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Right when we read the Old Testament, we see again and again they refer back to the Exodus. They refer back to the deliverance of God. Every time that the Hebrews entered into a period of exile, they always referred back to the Exodus. Remember when God delivered us. Remember when God delivered us. So we can agree that the event of the Exodus, of God bringing the people out of Egypt, was a significant event. It wasn't just like us walking across the street to 7-Eleven. It was a massive event. Why was it so massive? Why did it become such a cornerstone of Hebrew culture, of their traditions? In fact, it becomes a cornerstone of all that we read in the Bible. See, the Exodus, it was an event that birthed the nation of Israel. It was out of the promises of Abraham that God gave to Abraham to bless Abraham, to make his nation great. The promises that he gave to Jacob and to Joseph that this event occurred. Right, We read in Exodus that God heard the cries of his people. He heard them after 430 years of slavery. They were toiling in the mud. They were making bricks. They went from being an honored people of Joseph's house to being those that made bricks for Egypt. After 430 years, they cry out, and God hears their cries. And he remembers the promises that he gave to Abraham of making his nation. On top of that, this event, it helps to frame the entire redemptive story of the Bible. It, one commentator puts it that the Exodus becomes the standard of divine redemption that becomes the framework of the entire Bible. See, in this event, we agree that not only was the nation of Israel formed, but also God unfolded his framework for redeeming all of mankind. So in looking back, let's read from Exodus 16. As I was preparing today, I asked uh, Russ, I said, Russ, what's the Wi-Fi password for the, for the school? And he said, oh, bro, don't, no. The Wi-Fi is so unreliable, go old school. So it's about as old school as we go. I like it. 
Uh, Mark was giving me a hard time earlier about wearing my pastor jacket, so I left it on the chair. Because I can only take so much at one day. <laughs> so, uh, Exodus 16, 1 to 3. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out from Egypt. So we're, what, six weeks after this Exodus event? In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Wow. We're like six weeks after a series of plagues of God crushing Pharaoh and his army, of God delivering us out of 430 years of slavery, and that's the best we got. We have no meat. We have no water. Moses, take us back to Egypt. The interesting part is that this is not an isolated complaint of Israel. If we back up a little bit into Exodus 14, verses 10 to 14, we see that even before the people cross the Red Sea, they grumble. Right here they come up to the sea, they hear, they might see the cloud of Pharaoh's chariots coming, and their first reaction is, oh Moses, you've hung us out to dry. You've led us here to die. Oh, we should go back to Egypt. It was so much better. It was so much better. We got to play in the mud. We got to build bricks. We got whipped. Oh, it was just so much better, Moses. I'm sure that Moses must have just been doing the facepalm half the time. Like, oh. People, I was a prince of Egypt and I left that for this. Oh, man, you guys. But we see this time and time again with the people of Israel. In chapter 15, we see that they're, I don't know, not even days. So we've just, they've just come out of the plagues. They've just come out of a little bit of grumbling at the sea. Then all of a sudden the sea parts. They walk across on dry land, Scripture tells us. It wasn't even wet. They didn't even wade. It was dry land they walk across. They turn around. The sea closes up. The army's destroyed. Days later, three days later, they're traveling in uh, verse 22 of Exodus 15. And again, they have no water. Oh, Moses, we're thirsty. Moses, I'm parched. Oh, Moses, this is hard. This is hard, Moses. So again, we see the people, they're grumbling. Give us water. Give us food. Give us water. You see throughout, um, Katie touched on this in Numbers. You see it come out years later in the report of the spies. Right? The ten spies go into the land, and what do they do? They come back and they grumble. Oh, they're too big. Oh, it's hard. Two spies come out and think, this is doable. We can do this. Right? So we're beginning to see the difference in the shifting of their perspective. So we fast forward now about a thousand years to the book of Nehemiah in chapter 9. And we see that Nehemiah and Ezra have gone ahead it's now the, uh, probably the third exile. Israelites have been in Babylon. They've just been sent back to Jerusalem. Ezra and Nehemiah have gone to build the wall, to rebuild Jerusalem. And here in chapter 9, we catch up to the story of the Levites are 
giving a charge to the people of Israel as they consecrate uh, Jerusalem again. So in chapter, chapter 9, verse 9, You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials, and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them, so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths, like a stone into the mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right, and decrees and commands that are good. You made them known. Oh, sorry, you made known to them your holy Sabbath, and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. Verse 16. But our ancestors became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. Again, we have a little repetition. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. As I read that summary from Nehemiah a thousand years later, it was kind of like the opposite of Hebrews 11. On the one hand, you have a chapter about all the people of faith, and here you have pretty much a chapter about all the people of whining. <laughs> right? They refer to themselves as they look back a millennium later, and the Levites describe themselves as being arrogant, stiff-necked, we refused to listen, we were rebellious, and we failed to remember. In short, we were just a bunch of wicked people. So as we, look, as we look through some of these verses, we see that the themes of Israel during this time is that they were exhibiting a life of looking back, right? They were always looking behind them, always looking back. And in looking back, we see that what was exhibited was they were being rebellious, right? We read here that they were rebellious. They weren't listening. They weren't following the commands of God. Katie touched on this last week. They were fearful. They were living in fear. When God said, go into the promised land, look, this is the land that I've given you, instead of looking ahead to God, they were looking on their fears. They were based in that fears, and they weren't able to step forward in their faith and to accept that this is what God had given them. The other thing that we see through uh, this look back into the nation of Israel is that they weren't willing to change. We see that theme come out in their complaining and their grumbling. Moses, take us back. Take us back to slavery. I don't think that anybody in their right mind really wants to go back to being a slave. I don't think that they really wanted to go back to being under the whip, to being in the mud pits. I think instead, in their mind, they wanted to go back to what was comfortable. Even though it was difficult, they understood it. Right? For 430 years, this is all they knew. 
So they wanted to go back to what was comfortable, what was predictable. In a sense, they felt that they could control, right? Even though it was difficult and it was challenging, they knew how to handle it, right? They knew how to put up with it. They knew how to just put their head down and go to work every day. So as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, oh, man, how can Israel be so, oh, like, if all Moses did was face palm, I'd be amazed, right? Because we're reading about them. They're just, oh, they're grumbling. They're complaining. They just don't get it. They don't seem to see the big picture of what's going on. And so you got to ask why, right? Why? Why were they doing this? Why? Why is always a great question to ask, especially when we read the Bible. Why? Why was this happening? Why are they exhibiting these things? So in in looking to answer why, I suggest that the reason why is because Israel did not understand the purpose for why they were being delivered. For some of them, they may not have understood what was going on. They were busy um, with the everyday things that they couldn't step back and see, okay, why did God just do this? Why did God take us from being slaves into now we're being set up as a nation? I think part of it is because, as we mentioned earlier, they were delivered as a result of God's promises to Abraham. Right? God promised Abraham that because of his faith, he would bless him. He would bless all the generations after Abraham, and they would be a great nation. But it wasn't for the purpose of just being great, so that they could call themselves, we're Israel, we're a great nation. The result of God blessing them was so that they would bless others. Right? And in this deliverance, how were they able to bless others? And in this blessing, we read that they were elected to be ambassadors of God. Right? We read later on in Exodus and in Numbers that the reason why God set them apart, that God had given them Canaan, that God had established the laws was so that people would ask, well, why are you different? Why do you serve one God when we serve eight gods? It was all to point them to God. It was so that they would be a blessing to nations and point them to God. Another of the why questions I have as I was thinking about looking back is, how do we create an analogy of looking back? Because sometimes we think about looking back as a quick glance or it's a remembering the good old days, high school. It's a long time for some of us. For others, it's not that long ago. But sometimes looking back is good. But in this case, I think what we see, it's more akin to trying to drive a vehicle while focusing on the rearview mirror. Right? We have lots of people here that drive. Some are good drivers, some are not so good drivers. But imagine that you're in a vehicle and you're trying to drive and all you're doing is looking in the rearview mirror. It's not good. That's right. You're not going to get very far. You're not going to be very successful. You're not going to have a great time. Right? In our vehicles, the rearview mirror was never designed for us to focus on exclusively. Right? So when we, when we think about that analogy of driving a vehicle, when we look in the rearview mirror, what do we see? other than objects that appear closer than they really are. (laughs) But when we look in the rearview mirror, all we see is where we've been and ourselves. Right? And some of us may 
use it to adjust our makeup, fix our hair, as we're driving maybe. That would never happen, but you know. Right? So when we're, when we're intently focused on that little piece of mirror, all we're seeing is where we've been and ourselves. So it's inevitable that when we're focused on ourselves or where we've been, that we're not going to be going forward very well. And I suggest that this is what we're seeing with Israel in these examples here, is they were so focused on themselves and they were so focused on where they've been that they failed to recognize what was happening or where they were going. You see, we just read that all they were concerned about was, oh, Moses, Moses, give us water. We're thirsty. Moses, we're hungry. Oh, Moses, you brought us to the sea to die. Take us back. Right? All they were concerned about was now. My needs, my comfort. It's not comfortable. Um, they forgot the realities of what slavery is like. They forgot what it's like to be under the whip. They forgot what it's like to be knee-deep in the mud. Right? How often, when we switch our circumstances of the day, we forget. Right? When things are going great, we think, oh, this is awesome. When things are going bad, oh, things aren't so awesome. Because we lose our focus. We take our minds off of God, and we're just focused in the rearview mirror on what is us. In this, next to the question of why, is, is this other question that, that I thought of. is So we can see in these verses how Israel was arrogant, rebellious, didn't listen, failed to be obedient. But how about ourselves? How often would we describe ourselves as being arrogant, stiff-necked, rebellious, in that we forget the enormity of our deliverance? Because Israel wasn't the only people that's been delivered. All of us that have come to salvation have received the ultimate deliverance. Right? We've been delivered from the wages of sin and death into life. So how often do we forget what our deliverance is in our own rebellion and our stiff-neckedness and our arrogance? So now that we ask the why, now we think about the how. Now that we realize this, the error of living in stiff-neckedness, rebellion, of looking back, how do we go forward? How do we shift our perspective into living by faith? So in Hebrews 11, which I alluded to earlier about being the chapter of faith, they call it. It's like the hall of fame of people that live by faith. Uh, the writers, speaking of Moses in uh, verse 24 through uh, 28. We're going to focus on verse 26 of Hebrews 11. He, being Moses, regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Here was a prince of Egypt who forsook all of that for the greater reward of following God. He saw the value in what laid ahead, not what, what, he, what he left behind. Pretty significant when you stop and you just dwell on that point that the Bible tells us that Moses 
was a prince of Egypt. So he would have had all that would have been offered. And yet, he wasn't dwelling in that fact of, I'm a prince, I have access to the throne room, I have access to Pharaoh. Unlimited access to Pharaoh, no doubt. Instead, he's focused on looking ahead. Where is God taking us? It took him a while to get there, right? Some 40 years he wandered around in Midian being a sheep farmer. Right? So sometimes these things take process. It takes time. It takes time for us to come to God. It takes time for us to reorientate ourselves. Sometimes it happens in an instant through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But sometimes, like Moses, it can take us a while to get our perspective shifted consistently. Paul offers a greater insight into this in uh, Philippians 3, starting in verse 7. So a little bit back in, in verse 3, Paul's outlined his pedigree of why he could boast, why he could offer... Um, how would you say it? It's almost like his credentials, right? He talked about, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Um, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? He's laying out that he had significant credentials in his previous world. But we catch in verse 7, he says, but whatever were gains to me, I now considered loss for the sake of Christ. Sounds a lot like Moses. I consider it lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. How many of us are willing to go to that extreme as we look at our life, look at the, maybe the things that we have, the things that we've accomplished, our degrees, our professional life, our our house, our cars, and go, I consider them garbage for the sake of Christ. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all of this, or have already arrived at my goal. Remember, we talked about this being a process. right? Just like with Moses, here Paul is reiterating the fact, not that I have already obtained all of this, or have arrived at my goal. But I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Jesus Christ. Paul lays it out pretty succinctly here that all of these things that aren't of Christ he considers garbage. And in doing so, he also recognizes that, you know, life is a process. That even this individual who has such a, 
uh, for all intents and purposes, a pretty fantastic pedigree in the religious world. Um, he considers it all for nothing. He says, you know what, that's not enough. You know, having attained, um, being able to say of myself, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, as he does. Right? A Pharisee with great zeal. Righteousness as to the law, blameless. He had some serious street cred. And yet he says, you know what, it's all garbage. In light of the prize of Christ, it is all garbage. In verse 13, he says, One thing that I do, forgetting what is behind. And I think this is really the, the key of what God is saying here this morning, is forget what is behind. And we're not talking about that there's no consequences for our behavior or we don't live out the results of the decisions that we made. But forgetting what is behind in that we don't have to live life by that little rearview mirror. We don't have to be focused on where we've been or focused on ourselves. And in forgetting what is behind, he also provides a roadmap by saying, I'm reaching forward. I'm straining towards. Right? Straining, reaching. It indicates it's an action. He's not just merely, oh, that would be nice. Right? But he's active. He's straining. He's reaching forward towards his goal. Hmm? Press on. He's pressing on. Again, it's an action. It requires activity on our part. It requires intentionality. It requires something of us. Right? It's, it's beyond um, just sitting and going, okay, God, change my perspective. Okay, God, I want the prize. Okay, good. But now press on. Strain forward. Right? Stretch forward. And in doing this, you see, as, as I was sitting in this and just meditating on, okay, what Paul was saying here, what really became clear to me is that Paul had a very determined focus for where his energies were going. He had a very determined focus of his value of Jesus in his life. It was his focus. He refers to it here in these verses in Philippians 3 as the prize. In 1 Corinthians 9.27, he also refers to it as the prize. Right? In other epistles, Paul says, I run the race so that I may win the prize. The prize wasn't a crown. The prize wasn't so I can have a greater pedigree. The prize was Jesus. Right? That is the focus. In Hebrews 3.1, uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us, Fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. That is our focus. In Colossians 3, at the beginning of chapter 3, uh, Paul encourages the church, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Again, we see this repetition. Set your mind on things above. Put your focus on God. Jesus talked about this in the parable of the talents and the treasures. Right, Where your treasure is, there your heart is going to be. Right? So if our treasure's in God, our heart will be there. And, you know, maybe perhaps most famously, because we love to quote it, is when the Pharisees asked Jesus, oh, great teacher, what's the greatest commandment? 
And what did he reply? He replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your strength. When you encompass everything that you have, your focus is there, right? Just ask, ask any high-level athlete, in order for them to achieve even the right to compete in high-level athletics, it takes everything that they have. It takes all of their focus, all of their money, all of their, their whole life becomes wrapped up in this competition. This is what we're reading here. Our whole life needs to be wrapped up in God. It's not very popular sometimes, and it's challenging, but that's what we want to get to. If we want to shift our perspective from living our life in the rearview mirror and looking at ourselves or looking at our past or even looking at our circumstances of what's going on with me today, we have to have a focused determination on God. So that is the question that I pose today, is where is our hearts? So are we, are we a people that is going to focus on looking behind us? Are we a, are we a people that is, that is going to spend all of our time looking in the mirror? Because if that is us, church, we're just going to be a landscape of wrecked vehicles. Right? We're going to be crashing in this ditch, crashing into each other, crashing to other people. How often do we find ourselves focused on our past, living life on things that we've done, achievements that we've made? Um, we often joke about it. I've been there, done that, have the t-shirt, sold the movie rights. Right? Often, oftentimes we approach church the same way. Oh, I've done my time of serving. Oh, I've done, I've done this. Um, but that's because our focus is on us. So you see, I firmly believe that when we focus on God, that his purposes become our purposes. His heart becomes our heart. And we begin to see everybody as the Father sees them. So in that, let us not be like the children of Israel anymore. Let us not be a people that lives life in the rearview mirror. Let's not be the grumbling, stiff-necked, arrogant, rebellious people who fail to remember that we have been given everything. There's nothing that the Father has not given us. There is nothing that compares to the gift of salvation. There is nothing that equates to the fact that he took upon himself the wages of our sin so that we can have life. We need to live in this constant reminder of the immensity of God's graciousness to us. And I think that as we've listened last week and we've heard this week and, and in the worship this morning that now is the moment that God is pouring out his spirit upon us to change our perspective. Now is the time. We heard Debs talk about what's happening in Australia, that God is moving, people are on fire, the Holy Spirit is being poured out. 
He's calling his church to change our perspective. That starts individually with us. We need to change our perspective to be focused onto God. The best part about it is that the Father's waiting for us. He's waiting for us to change our perspective. He's beckoning us to come. We read in Nehemiah that after the Levites had given this big discourse about how they were wicked and arrogant and stiff-necked, they added, but you are a forgiving God. You are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. That is such a great thing, that we serve a God that is forgiving, that no matter what we've done, he is waiting for us. He is compassionate and gracious. You can't out-compassion God. That's right. We can't out-compassion God. He's slow to anger. We're all here. That's proof enough that he's slow to anger. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the reality of it, right? If God is in, in his justice, there's enough there to condemn us all. And yet... He is slow to anger. His compassion is overwhelming to us. So let's just um, take a few moments to think about that as Brandon and the worship team come. And if you feel God is stirring in your heart, that you need to shift your perspective, or that there's something else that you need prayer for, um, there's a team up here to pray for you if you want to come and pray. Um, If you want to pray in the privacy of your seat, that's good too. God is here. He'll hear you. And so just keep focused on him. Keep your perspective towards the Father. Awesome. Thank you.